0: by saying they accepted Mr. Rodman's apology but added that their loved one's plight was not a game. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. An Indian diplomat charged in New York is granted immunity. The U.S. earnings season kicks off with Alcoa missing on the bottom line. It did beat on revenues. The ECB stands pat on interest rates, but says it might have to do more. And the Fitch analyst that warned on China debt is leaving the agency. So a busy and exciting program, but then you'd expect me to say that. First, this little tease of what's to come.
1: continue to expect the key ECB interest rates to remain at present or lower levels for an extended period of time.
0: That is the ECB chief, Mario Draghi, on forward guidance. If you are curious what forward guidance is, well, it's just the central bank promising that interest rates will stay low for a long time. Our guests this morning include Jonathan Garner, head of Asia and emerging market strategy at Morgan Stanley. We'll get a check on his outlook for this year. We'll also be taking a look at the booming global recycling industry and the huge role that China plays in bringing old materials back to life at a mentor. Shanghai correspondent for Bloomberg Worldview, will be joining us here live on the program to talk about the notion and his book, Junkyard Planet. We'll get a check on markets in Asia for you in just a moment. But first, the big U.S. jobs report for December is coming out tonight. We get more now on his expectations from Morgan Stanley's Vince Reinhart. It's pretty
2: easy to forecast non-farm payrolls over the last couple of months. You start with 200,000, then you nudge it up or down, right. given your assessment of weather or special factors. We nudged it down to 190. Uh, recognize that the Fed is short of both their goals. Unemployment rate, we think, will be 7%. That's above their estimate way of the natural yeah. rate. Yeah. And inflation is tracking well below their goal of 2%. Within so they the got way- two reasons to keep a common... On
0: that last comment there about inflation, he is actually still worried about disinflation.
2: If we have low inflation, it means we have higher real interest rates given the nominal interest rates we have. Uh, And higher real interest rates are a disincentive to investment, a disincentive to to capital deepening. Uh, It means the Federal Reserve could do more.
0: And so that is Vince Reinhardt from Morgan Stanley. Markets uh, in Asia are set for a tense session today because you've you've got that U.S. jobs report coming out and also reports on Chinese trade. Both have the power to cause convulsions in the market, shifting the outlook for monetary policy in these two biggest economies in the world. And uh, MSCI's broadest index of Asia-Pacific shares outside Japan has barely budged this morning, while the Australian market has uh, a little bit down, not 0.2%. As I mentioned, more coming in just a moment. This is quite an interesting story, too. New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman said that BlackRock has agreed to stop surveying analysts before they issue their analyst reports.
2: Today, I'm pleased to announce the first major reforms resulting from our ongoing industry-wide investigation into the early release of Wall Street analyst sentiment. Last September, I gave a speech in which I outlined the dangers posed by what I call insider trading 2.0. This is a growing area of concern because it includes the increasingly common practices through which preferred technologically sophisticated market participants can gain early access to market-moving information that provides them with an unfair advantage over... The rest of us, and this creates a two-tiered system that is bad for our markets, it's bad for our economy, and it has to end.
0: And so he also highlighted the fact that he'd asked Thompson Reuters to stop selling some data early about consumer sentiment to uh, big players in the market, especially high-frequency players. And he expands a little bit here on what he achieved today with BlackRock.
2: I also highlighted the concerns that I had and continue to have about firms sharing and using early access to analyst sentiment, what analysts are uh, thinking before they actually issue a public report, particularly in systematic surveys constructed to gain an early peek at the views of many, many analysts. Analysts in their firms, ladies and gentlemen, are prohibited from providing to select clients early disclosure of research reports and are supposed to disseminate reports to clients simultaneously. A firm with access to analyst sentiments before those views are disclosed in published reports can front-run the market, uh, can gain an unfair advantage, and a firm with the technological uh, capacity and financial heft to broadly systematically obtain and utilize early access to analyst sentiments can have a serious and unfair advantage over uh, an analyst's other clients and damage the marketplace itself.
0: Okay, so that's the New York Attorney General, Eric Schneiderman. Here's how markets are faring in Asia. The Nikkei down 30 points in early trading, 15,850. In Australia, we see a modest decline, as I mentioned, 0.2%. The cost has been trending a little bit higher of late, and it is up five points now. At 1951. dollars yen is now at 104.87, so very little change there. The euro is bidding 1.360 US dollars. Again, as I mentioned, Jonathan Garner coming up in just a moment, but I wanted to squeeze in this first. Very interesting. Interesting story. Charlene Chu, the Fitch analyst who said that China could face a debt crisis is leaving the company after almost eight years. Her last day as senior director and head of China financial institutions will be January 14th. Ms. Chu says that she will work on her 89 year old cousin's memoirs. She warned, and this was quite a while ago, she warned that China's debt could spark a crisis. That preceded Fitch's April downgrade of the country's long term local currency debt rating, and he was the first cut by one of the top three rating agencies. In 14 years, Albert Edwards at SockGen said last year that Ms. Chu should be given a medal for her stark warnings. Well, she's leaving the company now, and we can only just guess the reasons why. We say good morning now to Jonathan Garner, head of Asia and Emerging Markets Strategy at Morgan Stanley. Uh, Jonathan, good morning. Welcome back to this program. So, equities in Japan and China are favored by Morgan Stanley to a certain degree. Can you expound on that?
3: Yes, essentially, we're continuing the advice uh, from last year. So, on Japan, we had clear outperformance, and we expect further yen weakness through the course of this year, courtesy of the Bank of Japan's balance sheet expansion and further progress in the general abonomics agenda. And that, that should drive ROE. To continue to improve perhaps towards double digits for the first time since 2006 and japan is still cheap to asia x japan uh, trading on a lower price book so i think that's reasonably straightforward it, the china call is more controversial as you were just mentioning there's a considerable debate about the need to delever the chinese economy uh, growth is probably softening again at the moment but we have exceptionally low valuations to the market's own history for china and versus em peers so we do think after the third plenum reforms, as they gradually get implemented, that market can re-rate a little bit.
0: And yet we saw from Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan uh, a call to reduce weightings in emerging markets. And I just wonder, because I thought I saw in that story that Morgan Stanley uh, had some comments about China, but you say that um, you're long China.
3: Well, we're... we're- Cautious emerging markets overall, but our concerns are more about funding risk countries running large current account deficits. Uh In this time zone, it's Indonesia, uh, it's Thailand, and it's India. And outside of this, uh, we're really concerned about Brazil, uh, South Africa, and and Turkey. So there is a large slug of the emerging markets universe ex-China, which has significant problems in funding its external imbalances in a rising U.S. rates environment. So we are also cautious on emerging equities overall.
0: And why are you cautious about those markets?
3: Firstly, it's that funding risk issue. How are they going to source dollar funding for their current accounts when the growth differential is moving in developed markets' favor and U.S. rates are backing up, which clearly signals a higher rate of return in the U.S.? And then also GDP growth itself has been quite sluggish for a while in in many of these countries, and earnings estimates uh, have been continually revised downwards. And we have a big political risk calendar. Uh, We have elections upcoming in many of those countries I just mentioned. Now, that that may offer an opportunity for structural reform, and that's needed in many cases. But for the time being, at least at the start of the year, we'd stay on on a cautious tack, uh, preferring Japan and China.
0: One interesting thing that has developed here in the last few days is that the 10-year yield has actually fallen down a little bit. Uh, It's come back from over 3% to about 296 or so. Does the bond market suspect that maybe growth isn't as strong in the United States as people have been saying it is?
3: Well, we'll find out with the non-farm payrolls, Ah, of course, later on. Um, Our view is that the 10-year yield will hit 3.5% by the end of this year. So we think this is just a counter-trend move in the overall move higher in
0: U.S. yields. And so for emerging markets, I guess they weigh up on one side an improving U.S. economy, which could provide stimulus to them, versus the Fed's taper program, which is to reduce the, um, the bond buying, thus reducing stimulus. And it sounds like what you're saying is that it comes out slightly on the negative side for particularly the Fragile Five and some of those other countries you mentioned, like Thailand.
3: Yes, it does. I mean, there's one we haven't mentioned so far, which is Taiwan, which is a North Asian market with high export exposure to developed markets. Um, Like China, a very strong sovereign balance sheet, so no funding risk issues there. Uh, Taiwan is doing pretty well at the moment, and that's a way of actually playing uh, many of these global themes uh, that is in Asia.
0: Are you worried – in terms of China, are you worried about slower growth because of the credit outlook, or are you actually worried about the, the debt pile and, and the, the credit story and, and the fact that uh, you know many people are saying, look, this is a real problem and it's not going to go away soon?
3: We, we wrote a number of reports at Morgan Stanley last year on this in detail and tried to map out the way in which China could achieve uh, what we might term a beautiful deleveraging, to borrow Ray Dalio's phrase. Uh, by the end of the decade. And in terms of mapping out the likelihood of achieving that, we originally were quite uh, cautious, but actually after the third plenum, we're starting to sense a kind of medium-term strategy here, particularly around enhancing productivity, which should keep up uh, GDP growth, transitioning ever more to a consumer services economy. And then at the same time, trying to wean the SOE sector off a heavy use of credit and rein in shadow banking. So we're actually getting a, incrementally a little bit more positive that China might pull it off, but we won't really know for several years yet.
0: And what sectors do you like the most, in China in particular?
3: Well, we still like what we call the new China sector, so that's consumer, IT, and healthcare. Um, they're less levered, uh, which is a key consideration with rates going up and, and credit conditions tightening. And they also face essentially the structural change that I just mentioned, that the Chinese economy is becoming more service and consumer sector driven all the time. There's specific elements of the five-year plan that help health care as well. So what we don't like is the heavy industrial SOE, uh, um, capital
0: goods so kind of area. basically, you like the private sector, you don't like the old state-owned enterprises, and that's still public sector.
3: I mean, that's, that's quite a broad Characterization There's certainly some companies that we have an interest in in, in, in that latter group, but as a, as a broad characterization, yeah, it could be new China sectors. So, what we favor
0: just here in the past few days, we've seen a lot of money rush into uh, stocks with a little bit of a story. And the general market uh, in Hong Kong in particular, China, too, has uh, slipped a little bit, suffered a little bit. Are you worried that there's so much money on the sideline that it's going to rush into some of these Internet companies, China gaming stories, uh, yeah, some of the uh, um, you know, recycling, the um, uh, you know, other areas that get hot for a short period and that's going to blow them up a bit?
3: Well, I can't talk about about individual stocks, but in in general, uh, if we look at some of the components, we're more relaxed on the internet names more generally. We we are somewhat concerned about the Macau gaming names, which are on much higher valuations. Um, So one does have to be careful on individual components of the story. For the index overall, uh, for Hang Seng, we think we're heading for about 25,600 this year. Um, And our eight-share target's about 12,600. I think that's slightly lower than... Some of our competitors. So I wouldn't want to position ourselves as being super bullish uh, for this year.
0: So we'd be uh, very interested in earnings versus the macro, or you still think the macro outweighs everything? Well, for China, we did
4: have, and for Hang Seng, positive earnings growth last year, subdued so positive. We should get that again this year.
3: Um, but really, it's the trajectory of the reform in, in China and just how, how volatile the economy is, as much as anything else, that's important. One of the problems we've had in investing in. Hong Kong and China in recent years is that actually the macro in the mainland has been quite volatile. In reality, the economy has been subject to some pretty sharp upwards and downward movements. Ever since inflation was a problem at the end of 2010, it would be great to get to a more stable overall macro environment.
0: Yeah. All right, Jonathan, thank you very much for joining us again here on Money for Nothing. Jonathan Garner, head of Asia and Emerging Market Strategy at Morgan Stanley. Something else that's quite interesting, along with the uh, 10 year yield dropping a little bit, oil prices have been dropping and not insignificantly, I might add. Uh, Brent crude, $106.39. We've seen about two weeks in a row now, so it's great for the airlines, but it may indicate that growth is not as strong as some people have said, particularly in looking at the U.S. And gold now, $1,228. Gold has come up a little bit from uh, the 1100s, seems to be settling around 12 and a quarter. Okay, as I shuffle my papers here a little bit, we wanted to take a look at uh, this story, Junkyard Planet. Well, that's the name of the book. The author is with us. Much of the raw material underpinning the $500 billion global scrap trade flows through China at one stage or another. The industry has become global in ways that would have seemed hard to imagine in earlier times. And author Adam Minter has charted the rise of the industry in his new book, and he joins us on the program. Uh, Mr. Minter, good morning. Yeah, thanks for hanging in there and waiting But we had, uh, you know, Morgan Stanley on there, Jonathan Garner And uh, so now it's your turn Uh, Tell us a little bit about the findings in this book
4: really covers uh, sort of what I call uh, the hidden back story of globalization. We all know the story about how uh, uh, you know manufacture from the West, Europe, the United States has sort of uh, migrated over uh, to, to Asia, not just to China, but to Asia in general and created these very complicated supply chains. What most folks don't realize is that the way our raw materials are procured um, and especially uh, uh, secondary materials, recycled materials are procured is globalized in the same way. Uh, right now, the number one export from the US to China, the number one export from the EU to China, uh, Japan to China, all by volume, is scrap recyclables. That's everything from old paper, old newspapers, to uh, uh, shredded automobiles. And that material is a, makes up what accounts for a $500 billion industry. That's an industry roughly the size of uh, the economy of Norway that supplies raw materials to make everything that we own, everything from cars to iPads. And if what you own doesn't have recycled content in it, because the recycled content... Is such an important part of the global commodity stream it's certainly affected by the prices. Of,
0: Holy uh, no. cow is all I can think of is uh, scrap is bigger than, say even jet uh, sales by Boeing to all those airlines in China.
4: By volume, by wow. volume. Of course, the jet sales are, are going by, by dollar value, yes, but by volume. So, uh, you, know, you know, we all know uh, how important exports are from the U.S. to China, for example. Soybean exports. There. there's more scrap recyclables flowing by volume into China than there are soybeans, which is remarkable.
0: Okay, so do you see room for new startups in this recycling space?
4: Well, that's what's so interesting about it is, uh, the answer is yes. And, and, you know, for, for centuries really, uh, since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, I mean, it's, I've always said, uh, you know, I say that, uh, recycling is sort of the entrepreneurial opportunity of last resort. Uh, it's, you know, it's not very capital intensive, especially in the developed world where a lot of hand labor goes into, uh, into transforming these, uh, exports of recyclables into raw materials. And, uh, now with China, uh, seeing the need, uh, for more sources of raw materials because the Chinese economy, as we all know, is still growing, still more manufacturing, they're actually subsidizing the growth of this industry and actually favoring it. In the most recent five-year plan, they raised uh, scrap metal recycling to the level of a critical industry. So with that happening and with the subsidies going, you see a lot of foreign money and a lot of Chinese money going into the space uh, to, to recycle products. So yes, there's a huge, huge opportunity here.
0: Is Hong Kong playing much of a role in this?
4: a critical role. Actually, um, a significant percentage of recyclables that flow into China actually flow through Hong Kong uh, for all kinds of reasons. Um, one is that the uh, the taxation level on recyclables going into Hong Kong is much lower. So when materials go into Hong Kong, they might be processed in such a way so that they get a lower duty going into China. So believe it or not, there's a lot of mainland money going into Hong Kong, setting up recycling yards so things can be actually recycled in Hong Kong first before going into the mainland. Um, but the second thing is, is uh, you know, as we all know, Hong Kong is, is a hub for, uh, for commerce in China, and you see a lot of uh, publicly held companies um, in China in uh, in China uh, being uh, offered publicly in Hong Kong in the sector so there's a there's a big opportunity there yeah
0: so getting to your book uh, who's buying it at the moment and uh, do you get much feedback on why they're buying it
4: Yeah, it's quite interesting, actually. Um, You know, you you hear it's a book about recycling, and so you think it's going to be, uh, you know, just the environmentalists who are buying it. Certainly, environmentalists are buying it, but it's also a very pragmatic book. I don't take a a glassy-eyed or green-eyed approach to the industry. And so uh, we're actually getting quite a bit of uh, business buyers uh, uh, purchasing the book. And (laughs) I've been receiving, uh, surprisingly, quite a few uh, emails from investment bankers, both in Asia and the United States, who have bought the book with added questions. Uh, They're interested in how to get into this industry. Um, but it's also a book for anybody who is interested in just a good uh, ripping tale, uh, you know, about travel. I've, I've been uh, covering this industry for 11 years, and I actually grew up in a family in the United States that owned a small junkyard. So I, I detail sort of my personal history in it. And, and so we, uh, we just had an, uh, a review in The Economist uh, uh, this morning uh, talking about it as a, as a great read for anybody who's interested in what happens to their stuff. So the readership has been pretty wide, and uh, we're really pleased with that.
0: Well, I might have to read the book to get the answer to this, but, you know, you sort of have this notion that. China's producing a lot of junk and you're telling me that it's importing a lot of junk. Uh, Is China soon to become an exporter of scrap and junk and pollution?
4: Yeah, that's a fabulous question. Actually, already China is exporting some scrap metal uh, to the world. I mean, uh, you know, we think of it as junk, but uh, you know, most people think of it as junk. But but it's really a raw material that has a lot of value uh, in it. And so, if somebody, if somebody say in Korea needs uh, a copper, and somebody in say Tianjin has an excess of scrap copper, they'll export it. Um, but the big story in junk, if you will, over the next few years is the one you just hinted at: is that you know China's. Going a lot more wealthy, and as people grow wealthy, they throw away more stuff. And so the volume of stuff that Chinese folks and Chinese factories are throwing away is growing exponentially, and uh, that's one of the reasons why the Chinese government is giving so much support to this industry now. They're going to have to figure out uh, the most efficient and profitable ways to recycle that stuff.
0: Okay, Adam, great stuff. Really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. And uh, we'll have you back here on Money for Nothing. See how the book sales go over six months. Adam Minter, Shanghai correspondent for Bloomberg Worldview and the author of of the book Junkyard Planet. Yeah,
2: that's
0: the one I play when I just kind of Uh, Rode in on my horse, and I'm going to tie it up and getting ready to to meet the next guest. And that next guest is Danny Hicks, AFP Sports Direct. Good morning, Danny. Good morning, Brian. So, uh, premium sports broadcast rights, sure to be a massive business in 2014. We thought we'd look ahead into this year and explore this Mm. interesting issue. Tell me more. Well, there's
1: been a delight report out uh, this week, which... uh, Put some staggering numbers on the on the uh, growth of TV uh, sports rights uh, around the world, and uh, they predict in 2014 they're going to hit a new record high of something that this, is in, this industry is going to be worth something like 26 billion dollars uh, in the coming year, which i uh, say is a staggering number. Now that only includes sort of what they call premium annual sports, right? That doesn't include the two big events we've got this year globally, which are the Winter Olympics coming up next month, and of course the Football World Cup, which is the biggest of all. If you factor in those, you're talking in excess of $30 billion. Wow, that's incredible. And who's spending most of this? Well, uh you and me <laughs> in a nutshell because it's the TV companies but we're paying them through our subscriptions and uh, anybody who's uh, bought the Premier League football rights on uh, Now TV this year will know that they cost more than they did on iCable last year and the, and the story is is the same around the world and it seems like the consumers are prepared to pay and while they are then uh, there seems to be no, no let up in, uh, in this bubble which is uh, uh, the price of uh, watching sport
0: on your TV the, the growth this year is estimated at fourteen percent over last year. I can imagine most uh, most of the uh, money is going to like the Premier League, maybe to the NFL, yep. Major League Baseball. Baseball. Um, uh, I don't know. Are there any? Uh, what about um, Serie A or some of these other leagues?
1: Well, yeah. The, the, the report interestingly said you know seventy five percent of that. Uh, Kind of 30 billion pot, let's say, uh, is being spent on the on the big football leagues in Europe, which would be the Premier League, the Spanish League, the German League, Syria, R, and so on, and uh, and obviously the uefa champions league and things like that but uh, th- that is coupled with uh, the big four american sports uh, are a big part of that and and baseball is probably the biggest driver of the lot uh, as we know 162 games a season baseball during the summer every day is uh, being shown on uh, on tv globally and of course across the states and uh, that's a huge driver for it um you know, the FIFA World Cup this year, the, the last World Cup generated something like $2.4 billion for FIFA. This year it's going to exceed $4 billion just for just for a four-week tournament. So the, the, the numbers are staggering. And until us as consumers sort of say no more, no more and uh, stop paying the increased fees for our uh, TV subscriptions, this is going to go on.
0: Yeah, and... Um there is a lot of money in sport, obviously, and uh, yeah, maybe it hits a tipping point, but maybe it just kind of runs up. Seems like inflation in this is a lot, is running a lot faster mm. than inflation elsewhere. In fact, we've got disinflation uh, throughout much of the uh, rest of the world, uh, but not so in the personal earnings of the of the big swinging sports stars. I noticed that Tiger Woods was up there on top, and he's been on top for something like eleven years in a row. Yeah, a, and he's what he's made like over a billion U.S. dollars. That's
1: crazy. One point three billion. And- and counting to be precise now uh, his, his earnings for last year uh, estimated by a Golf Digest report this week at 83 million dollars uh, about 11 million dollars of that was earned by actually playing the game in prize money and the rest came from uh, sponsorships and endorsements. So Tiger is certainly over the, the dodgy period he had uh, three or four years ago when uh, he had his uh, his well-publicized troubles and, uh, and a few sponsors left him. Uh, they seem to be back in droves now. That's uh, even more than some of those fat cat CEOs that we like
0: to take shots at.
1: <laughs> it certainly is and uh, it, it would be interesting when the, the kind of lists come out as they do at this time of year for, for all sports. This is just a, glo- a golf list we have this year, whether, whether Tiger remains number one globally. Uh, Floyd Mayweather in boxing has, has got a huge uh, deal at the moment, and he might just pick Tiger to the number one spot. There's always been those two. and Especially uh, if uh, he fights Manny Pacquiao. And if he fights Manny Pacquiao at some point this year, which is not completely out of the question, but more likely to be 2015, then uh, he will go off the scale, because we're talking about a 200- $200, 250 million dollar fight. Just so for what about two. the other guy in the kind of big two, Rory McElroy? Where does he fit in? Well, M- Rory McIlroy... Uh, had a very lean time on the course, as we know. Only won one tournament last year. So his uh, tournament earnings were, were, were not what they have been. But uh, he still made $20 million last year, uh, mostly through his uh, well publicised and uh, slightly infamous deal to switch to Nike equipment and clubs, which uh, has sort of set him back a bit on the course. But uh, he made $20 million in, in a poor year for him. So uh, well, if he starts hitting his straps this year,
0: the sky's the limit. Just briefly, Adam Scott got player of the year on the uh, USPGA tour where did he come in? Uh,
1: he came in a little bit down. He, he sort of Probably the endorsement's he, not so big. For the him. endorsement's not so big for Adam Scott. Um, interestingly, you know, uh, the guy who was uh, who, who won everything on the European Tour and also won the FedEx Cup, Henrik Stenson, uh, made it, made around $11 million on the course, uh, the same as uh, Tiger Woods, but only pulled in $1.7 million in endorsements. I think that might go up this year,
0: given the year he had last year. Yeah. Okay, got to go, Danny. Thank you. Danny Hicks, AFP Sports Direct. Markets are mixed this morning and so is the weather mainly cloudy cool maximum temperature about 17 degrees and just looking for a slightly better weather ahead yeah, yeah, yeah. <music> <music> yeah they say sunny periods over the weekend so we got that
2: CHK, Radio 3.
0: the news with samantha butler an Indian diplomat arrested in the United States last month in connection with allegations concerning payments to her maid has now been charged with visa fraud and making false statements. The case caused outrage in India when the diplomat Devyani Kobroghadi was handcuffed and strip-searched. The BBC's Brenda Marshall reports.
4: The diplomat is charged with knowingly making false representations to the American authorities in order to obtain a visa for her personal maid. The false information concerned the maid's terms of employment, which it's alleged did not comply with U.S. labour laws, covering minimum wages and limiting working hours. The maid eventually fled from her employer in the middle of last year. Ms. Kobragari denies the charges against her. The treatment of Ms. Kobragari on her arrest caused outrage in India and in the latest sign of rapidly deteriorating.